Well, this morning we're going to uh, continue in our study in the book of Ephesians. Um, and uh, we've actually asked a good friend of ours who's been a part of a friend of this church uh, since we started many years ago. Um, actually met Mike in Barney's Beanery, I think. And we started talking about what would it look like for us to like actually care for the city together. Mike was leading a church in the Burbank area. Um, and so we, when we first started this church, um, we partnered together on many things in trainings and in trying to, to care for the city together. And, and uh, so we've invited Mike to come share this morning, and so we're excited about that. And so if you want to come up, I'll pray for you, and then we'll, um, we'll go from there. Um, and so you can tell your, your story. I won't have to tell that. Um, yeah. So, Father, I thank you for my brother Mike. I thank you that you love him and you've equipped him to teach your word. Father, I pray that you would use him through your spirit this morning um, to equip your family here in Culver City. And pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 It is good to see all of you. Some of you I remember. Some of you I don't know at all. Um, I started our church a couple years in Burbank before trip. Our, my family are missionaries. Um, that's kind of who we are. So we moved back from Mexico. We were living in a little colonia called the Valle Las Palmas doing some community development work back in 2006 to start a church in Burbank. Um, by God's grace, we planted that church and uh, we started growing. We started in our living room. Three years ago, we moved into the facility in Burbank directly across from Disney Studios on Alameda. So it's the sweet established church building. It's like the dream for church planters. And so we got into that building and we grew even more. And I was the last one to the game to realize the bigger we grew and the more established we became, the less I enjoyed it. And that was just a huge piece of self-awareness for me that I'm a planter and I'm a starter and I'm an entrepreneur. But once we, once we got to the place where I wasn't the one asking people to come follow me as I'm on mission and watch what I'm doing, but I'm training entire groups of leaders to go off and do that, I just really have no desire to do that whatsoever. And so um, we realized that this is going to be a dream job for someone, and so I figured we would be hindering the church if we stayed any longer. So as of the end of September, uh, I am no longer employed, so if you want to bankroll <laughs> binge watching the, the new season of The Good Place, let me know, and I'd be happy to take that from you. Um, but we ended up turning it over, and we are on our way to something new. I really have no idea what that is right now. We are walking by faith yet again to figure out what God has next for us. Uh, before we dive into Ephesians, I really want to encourage you. One of the cool things, kind of, over this last season, it's bittersweet, is been going to a new church every Sunday to teach. Uh, because I've been doing this for a long while. We have a lot of ministry relationships and friendships. And so every Sunday we go into a new church and I'm teaching, and there is a unspecified Los Angeles template of gather beautiful people, give beautiful people good worship music, bring someone who's really dynamic to teach, maybe do something with the lighting, maybe if you're super into it, you got the fog, like, but we're going to do the whole thing and then we're going to call that a good service. I want you guys to know, like, that's what I was expecting walking in here because that's what typically happens. When you guys started sharing your stories, that's when this became a church service. That's when you guys started doing church 
And I was like, oh, snaps, that's what needs to be happening. And it's so funny because half of you are in the entertainment industry to begin with. We're the ones who put on the smoke and mirrors. And then people think that by those smoke and mirrors, we're going to be impressed. And yet every one of us is just looking for some real connection. We're just looking for someone and something that feels genuine and real to connect with on a Sunday morning. We do this all week long. We don't need to do that on Sunday as well. And so I was just so blessed. Uh, Props. (laughs) Super thankful for that. My soul is super thankful for that. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3. You guys have been in your study of the book of Ephesians. We are going to be in the first 13 verses of Ephesians 3. This is a really interesting passage because this is one of those passages where Paul starts out introducing what he's going to say, doesn't say it, and then comes back to it verses later. And all of a sudden you're wondering, where are we at? So if you were to read 13, uh, verses three, chapter 3 the way it's supposed to be read, he starts saying, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, and then skips to verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, and then goes on into his prayer. But it's almost as if he gets so caught up in what he just said, that he reminds himself that there's more to still say. He does this all the time in the New Testament epistles. And he takes a break and says, whoa, 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 we need to stop and slow down in case you missed what I just said. Like Paul's making notes saying, this is really good. Write this down. He starts out by saying, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. So you guys were in Ephesians 2, I'm assuming last week or sometime recently, where he's talking about making one new people out of the two, the Jews who were near, the Gentiles who were far off. He just finished showing how God created this one new people, and now he's going to show here that this was a revelation that was not previously known. That this is something that was revealed to the prophets and the apostles in this time. In the early days of the church, most of the apostles were still in Jerusalem under the leadership of Peter. And Peter's ministry was to stay in Israel, announcing to the Jews that they had crucified their Messiah. And when you read the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts, it's only Peter. And he is all over the place doing exactly what God has asked him to do. He's preaching the gospel to the Jews who were left behind in Jerusalem. And every chapter is Peter doing something, Peter doing something, Peter doing something. But Peter, the apostle to the Jews, was a little bit late to the game that God had truly extended salvation to the Gentiles. And he can be forgiven for that a little bit. He ends up having his own revelation with a man named Cornelius, who's a Gentile centurion in Acts chapter 12, where God shows Peter that he is now saving the dirtiest, most wicked, far-off, lack-of-covenant-of-God people possible. And Peter recognizes truly everyone can be saved. 
But God doesn't give Peter that ministry. He's going to save a young pup named Saul who's currently persecuting the church. And he's going to give him a distinct ministry. And he tells Peter, you stay in Jerusalem. I'm going to tap this guy and he's going to go to the ends of the earth. And he's going to be called the apostle to the Gentiles. So this is a pretty big deal. And it's a pretty difficult pill to swallow here. Context, which you've already been in chapter 2, so I don't want to belabor, but if there was a rift between Jews and Samaritans because Samaritans were half Jewish, there was a chasm between Jews and Gentiles because they were the dirty people who were far off from God, living life without any kind of conscience whatsoever, doing whatever they wanted. When Jews would return from a foreign Gentile land, they would wipe the dust off their feet. That's like for you guys having to drive to the San Fernando Valley. As soon as you come back over the hill, you're like, may I never have to go there again. You wipe the dust off your feet. Finally, we're back in real Los Angeles. You're laughing, but I know you. I know you, Culver City. The Jews couldn't enter the homes of Gentiles. The Jews could not eat meals prepared by Gentiles. And some rabbis taught that you couldn't eat meat that was cut by Gentile knives. Not unlike the segregation that our own country experienced by classifying people as less than human to treat them differently, this is exactly the situation that Ephesians is speaking into. There is a group of people that has been deemed unworthy of salvation because they're less than human, pretty much. And so we can completely separate them and keep us to ourselves. There was a deep-seated hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. So when Paul just made the statement, God called me to be the missionary to the Gentiles, he wants everyone to appreciate the import of what he's just said. He is going to these people that no one else wants to go to, that everyone else looks down on, that the Jews who had the knowledge of the truth of God did not even dignify as human beings. He was supposed to be the apostle to them. And there's two things that's going on in this passage. There are several verses using the same phrase that shows us what he wants to take this, this side trip on. He talks about this revelation that was given to him, and then he talks about the ministry that resulted because of the revelation. So in chapter, chapter 3, verse 2, he says, after this parenthesis, "...assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly." Assuming you have heard the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how I made known this mystery by revelation. We're going to come back to that. And then the ministry that came as a result of that revelation in verse 7, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. So the revelation is a stewardship of God's grace. The ministry is a gift of God's grace which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of the saints, this grace is given. So looking at the revelation given and then the resulting ministry. 
Paul's understanding here of divine revelation was that if God chooses to reveal himself to someone in the church, they now have a divine responsibility to steward that revelation and share it with others. Very similar to what you did if God has given you a word of encouragement or edification or a scripture or a testimony to share. If God has done something in our lives, we have a responsibility to steward that on behalf of others. So like, God bless you for having the courage to stand up and share about a fertility journey. I wish I didn't know that story as well as I do. But you can't be a pastor and not intimately walk that story over and over, and it's heartbreaking every single time. And I guarantee in a room this size, that's not the only story here, and I know nothing about this church. That's something that when God does something in you, there's a responsibility to steward that for others that you may or may not be aware of what they're going through. And he was to steward everything that God was revealing to him on behalf of the Gentiles. And he says, I am a prisoner on behalf of the Gentiles. Now, how is it that he's actually a prisoner? Because humanly speaking, he's imprisoned by Nero. But he calls himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He is actually in a Roman prison because of the fanatical Jewish opposition to his ministry to the Gentiles. He is currently suffering for the revelation that God gave him, meaning he has skin in the game. This isn't something that he's just tweeting out and then walking away with no repercussions. He is currently suffering because of the revelation that God gave him and because he believed he needed to act on that revelation. But he trusted that if God is ruler of all and everything comes from him, is for him, is done through him, then he must be the one responsible even for his imprisonment. And he takes up this theme fairly often. I think you would do well to pay attention to this. So we're just going to put a comma in right here. This is a theme all throughout the New Testament that Paul returns to over and over again. What happens to me matters for you. We are connected in some way. In in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says something similar that the treasure we have is in jars of clay to show the surpassing powers of God and not of ourselves. Listen to what he says. He goes through this laundry list of being afflicted, being perplexed, being persecuted, all of that. And then he says, I'm always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. And he concludes this, so death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. That's one of those prayers that we don't want to pray. That's an unwelcome introduction into fellowship with Christ's sufferings. We don't often ask for it or desire it, But we do have a responsibility to recognize when God himself is working out some sort of death in us personally that may not have anything to do with us itself. This is on behalf of others. 
that God has given me the privilege to share in some way in his sufferings so that I might have a deeper fellowship with him. And I get it. I love fellowship with Christ in the power of his resurrection. That's what I pray for. But it's also fellowship through, the, through his sufferings. And Paul is actually living that as he's preaching right now. So he didn't just preach about this undivided humanity from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He's suffering for it. And he says in verse 3 that this is a mystery. He keeps using this phrase, mystery. This mystery was entrusted to me. And this is not like an episode of Sherlock. The word is used to refer of something that was not previously known, that was revealed by God, and now was known by the initiatives. So that's why it was used in other cult religions as these mysteries, these secret revelations that were given. The best way that I can think to illustrate it is something that is commonly true for everyone, but only known and appreciated by some. So for those of you who are parents, all of my children, we have four kids, two teenagers, and then down to six years old. Actually, our families match the fortunes pretty well, um, except we mostly have boys. Um, But they all went through this ridiculous phase when they were toddlers where they didn't want to sleep. Stupid, right? Like, they didn't want to nap. I spend most of my life looking for couches where I can lay down for five to ten minutes. I love napping, and I love naps. I think everybody should. I think they're God's gift of grace to all of us. But my kids went through this phase where the last thing they wanted to do was nap. Now, what's funny is I know they're getting older. And one day they will grow up and have jobs and have families and have kids. And one day they too are going to appreciate how good naps are. And they're going to look back and say, why did I not appreciate it when I could have done it all day long? Like, I was living the life. I got a blankie, I got a TV show, I'm just going to kick it here all day long. That's kind of what he's getting at with this mystery. It's something that's true, but not everybody appreciates it in the same way. He's saying, this is a mystery that was revealed to me. The truth has been revealed by God and now is known openly to the church. And the truth is, in verse... um, Five, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it now has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. The truth is that these Gentiles, who were viewed for millennia as less valuable, are now co-heirs, members of the same family, and partakers of the same promise. There is no difference between those of you who have been following God from birth for generations than those of you who just heard about him yesterday and are super excited about what he's doing in your life. No one has a leg up on the other. And he is saying this is something that was made known to him. And the application there for which he's suffering is that our prejudices have to be demolished by the gospel. And you need to appreciate this just in some real time. 
If you were to ask Peter if he was a racist on this account, he would have told you no. After all, Cornelius, God revealed it to me. I know it. But I don't think we appreciate how deeply ingrained certain things get within us from birth, from family of origin. And it is a level of self-awareness to be able to look back and see the script that you inherited. Some of you inherited a script that people who didn't get their high school diploma are white trash. Some of you inherited the script that those who squandered their college years are just frivolous and wasting their lives. Some of you who are not familiar with the way the entertainment industry works in L.A. are like, why don't you just get a job that's nine to five? We all have different ways that we look down and judge others. We do it within, we do it without. It's part of being human. And the gospel has to demolish those prejudices, but that only actually happens when we spend time with others that we have marginalized as less worthy and affirm their humanity as image bearers. So let me give you a scene right out of Scripture. Peter, who I assure you would never have said, I'm given to prejudices, decides that he's going to visit the church in Galatia, made up of Gentiles and Jews. And Peter goes there and he realizes that they're one new society. And so he's eating bacon and listening to Tupac and he's enjoying the church. And then all of a sudden, certain men from Jerusalem come in. And all of a sudden, Peter begins to feel like they're judging him because of how friendly he's getting with the Gentiles. And so all of a sudden, Peter takes the bacon out of his mouth, presses paws on the player, walks over here and sides with the Jews and starts throwing shade on the Gentiles. And Paul, who by this point has been a Christian for 15 years, but make no mistake about it, Paul is the young pup. Peter is the OG. Paul walks into Galatia and he sees what Peter's doing and he says, your conduct is not in line with the truth of the gospel. You need to repent right now. Because he recognized the message that he was sending is that we're going to say we're all one family, but we all really know who the special people are. It's the people who kind of got the covenant of God 5,000 years ago. What do you Gentiles got? Again, this hostility runs deep. And so this ministry that he says results because of the divine revelation is something that actually causes him to put his money where his mouth is. He is going to endure the scorn and shame from all of the Jews in Jerusalem to do something that most people think is crazy. Isn't it just enough for us to say the Gentiles are cool with God? Isn't it just enough for us to know the Holy Spirit has been given to them as to us? Do we really need to put ourselves on the line? Do we really need to have something that's going to reflect negatively on us? And Paul's whole ministry is entirely different than Peter's ministry. And what I want to say is both of them are valuable to God. But both of them understood what God had called them to and what he had not called them to. And Paul's ministry was to be the apostle of these Gentiles that no one wanted to go to. Again, I say this is not dissimilar from the history of our country because it's not. 
It's easy to read Jews and Gentiles with a spiritual filter before our eyes and we don't actually appreciate what's really going on here. The, Jew, the, the Gentiles were not of Jewish ethnicity. They were not the covenant keepers. They were not the people of God. They were far off doing all kinds of crazy things and no one wants to deal with them. And so when he's saying there is one new society that God is bringing together, you need to appreciate the weight of how difficult that new society would be to actually establish. To pursue that in a real way where everyone, from the homeless guy who crashes on the couch that we met, to the single mother who has an education of up to 10th grade coming with a child to this community, to a successful businessman who works for Google, to the young pretty girl who's out here from Oklahoma who's trying to make it in the industry. Every one of them is valuable. Every one of them has something to contribute. And every one of them is necessary for this church to truly be called anything resembling a capital C church. We don't get white people. This is where you say amen. That's your heads up for next time. (laughs) We have to appreciate what it actually looks like for that to be something that happens. The ministry starts in verse 7 with a right view of ourselves. He says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of His power to me, Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. What grace? To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. To me, though I am the least of all the saints, all of this starts with a right view of ourselves. And whatever it is I fancy makes me better than another human being, I have to bring that under the light of the cross of Jesus Christ. And what Paul does here is he invents a word in the original language called leaster. He says, I am the leaster of all the saints. Basically, I am less than the least of any of these saints. And he's not just being self-effacing in a cute way. He is genuinely, sincerely convicted that he was the man responsible for persecuting this new community. And so it's a genuine recognition of his own helplessness without Jesus. I don't even deserve to be given this ministry. I'm less than the least. And that's also a play on his new name because Saul, the persecutor, becomes Paul, whose name means little or small. And so he's just basically owning that and saying, you have no idea how small and little I actually am without Christ. And this ministry is to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ to all. Chapter 1, he spent a lot of time talking about the riches of Christ. Chapter 2, he spent a lot of time talking about the riches of Christ. This is not some offhand gospel conversation. This is proclaiming the riches of the resurrection from the death of sin. The riches of union with Christ and his people the riches of the end of hostility and the beginning of peace, the riches of access to the Father by Christ the Spirit, 
the riches of reconciliation between God and man, the riches of being a part of his kingdom and an integral dwelling place where God will be with man as their God and they will be with him as his people. How on earth do we actually confer those kinds of riches, the depth of relationship available to all, I want to suggest that the only way we do that is by conferring dignity and respect to every human being, regardless of any ethnic, cultural, or socioeconomic background, and to appreciate the body of Christ as much bigger than just us. This is a huge piece because it requires a recognition that when Christianity is held captive by any one culture, we end up strapping our cultural preferences on the back of the gospel and presenting that as the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, this isn't just an American thing. This is something that happens as a missionary, I can tell you, in every single culture. Because people get excited about receiving the gospel, they then read it through their own lens and their own background and begin to put their own cultural assumptions onto things about what that thing is. So there's a reason why most people who walk into a Sunday service have a general idea that there will be chairs facing forward, which by the way, you need to appreciate is very Western. That's neither good nor bad. It comes from an education, institutional mindset that somehow I am the expert teaching you, which is really funny in a room full of people who are more than my age that I should in no way be considered an expert to. Normally, that's conferred to age. And I knew walking in, there'd be some kind of music from some people on stage. You can call it a choir, you can call it a band, you can call it a worship team. I knew there would be something like that. These are cultural assumptions that we have that are not necessarily true everywhere. And when we strap our understanding of the gospel to it, it makes it unintelligible to another culture. Which means we're responsible for the accurate transmission of the truth of the riches of God's grace without you becoming more like me in order for it to be true. You dig? That's hard because now it requires exegeting our own culture, the biblical culture, and the culture of the people that we're going to. And that is the work, by the way, that we call missiology. And all missiology is is a $12 word that takes theology, who God is, and takes ecclesiology, how we live that out, and thinks about it in the middle spectrum of how that gets expressed to different peoples and people groups in a way that the unchanging truth of the gospel does not get diluted because of our host culture. Now, I'm assuming someone thinks I'm pushing this just a little too far. Like, aren't you just taking something in culture and kind of eisegesing that back into scripture? I'm not. Look at verse 10. Paul says, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God may now be known. 
Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God may now be known. The word manifold means multicolored. And it's used of tapestry, Joseph's manifold coat, his coat of many colors. That's what the word manifold refers to. Flowers, garments, colors. And he's saying through the church, this manifold grace of God would be known. And that's important because you belong to a capital C church that extends from the western to the eastern hemisphere that includes every tribe, tongue, and nation alive. Some who are presently worshiping Jesus and some who are not yet because we have not gone. But all of them belong to him and the global church is bigger than the way that we express it here. The danger of modern Christianity is we have a hesitancy to learn from other traditions and streams because we're so threatened by them that we can't appreciate how God has been moving in vastly different contexts and cultures and peoples. And it's the same gospel of Jesus Christ there as it is here. It's the manifold wisdom of God in a multiracial, multicultural community of God where the people themselves are the tapestry, which is the wisdom of God, revealing different truths about who God is through the lens of our own backgrounds. Besides Jess, are there any other MKs here? Okay, so you're intuitively on the same wavelength then. If you grew up in another culture, and then you have to come back to America, missionary kids are now called third culture kids because they're always code switching. They're always trying to figure out what culture is in the back of their minds and what's right and what's wrong. It's what happens to people who live globally. You can't avoid it. But the recognition of that is the goodness of God that he's placed in all these very different contexts and cultures. And there's a lot that we have to learn from the manifold wisdom of God from these different traditions. Listen, we didn't invent the story-formed way. Cultures where orality is their method of communication have been doing this for millennia. We did not invent expository preaching. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus takes the apostles and beginning with Moses and the prophets, explains to them in scriptures all the things concerning himself. We didn't invent any of this. It's been appropriated by culture since the beginning of time. And Paul says that's the divine revelation that access to them has been given. And there's a lot that we can learn. So, of course, I'm coming from it from a missionary standpoint. I preach in a lot of different kinds of churches. You know what I've never heard in a black or a Hispanic church? Why are you yelling at us? Not once. But when I preach in white churches or in Asian churches like Young Knock, that's one of the first things. What's this guy's problem? I have my notebook open and I have points that I'm, I'm ready to listen. I will be a good note taker. Why are you so emotional? But in a black church, the whole understanding of homiletics is that this is a worship celebration that's going to start here and is supposed to build to a crescendo where all of a sudden we get more and more and more emotionally involved until it's this outpouring of praise and worship. 
That's a cultural understanding. And in the Hispanic church, you haven't prayed or preached until you've cried. So once you've cried, now you really have had enough emotion in the game. So the very emotion that turns some people off is exactly what other people are looking for. Do you see the difficulty now of being a church in Los Angeles who's made up of all of those backgrounds? You can't win. Because every time I take a step forward to contextualizing to one culture, I'm taking a step away from another one. Which, by the way, is intentionally why I called you white people before. Just to kind of throw a wrench in that to get your attention. So you're like, hey, that's not fair. Because white people typically don't recognize we're also an ethnicity. We just think, like, we're normal, right? No, no. You have a very specific cultural bias, like every culture has a very specific cultural bias. And we need to appreciate that it's through that the manifold wisdom of God is seen. With the humility of Paul, recognizing that we need different traditions to learn from and to make us greater than just where we come from. So years ago, some of you guys remember the movie Crash. I think it was like early 2000s. It was a portrayal of racism in Los Angeles. Some people thought it was so over the top and so unrealistic, and some people thought it was an an accurate portrayal. But it delves into the prejudices that keeps people from experiencing each other as human beings. It really delves into the prejudices of why I can, in my mind, mentally shut you off as less than because of your education, because of your station, because you live in the Antelope Valley, because you belong to, right? We do it in LA. All, we have these blocks in our minds. And if I can make you less than a person, then your opinion really doesn't matter to me, which means I don't have to treat you as a human being made in the image and likeness of God because you're just not that important to me. And in a city that's governed by networking, it's almost like a computer program running in our minds all the time. Who do I need to talk to at this function to further my career? I know it's close to home, but just real talk. And the movie's poignant because Crash shows how we deal with the people that we consider outsiders. But the gospel, by definition, is a message for those outside the current cultural norm. It has never been a mainstream accepted religion. It was always on the outskirts to the outskirts. We've, sang, we've just kind of sanitized it, but who did Jesus go to? Come on now. Who did he spend time with? Prostitutes. Drunks. People who wanted nothing to do with God. The Roman tax collectors, religious and political zealots. Who did he spend his time with? Not the, this is the thing for me. As a pastor, I look at the Pharisees when I'm reading the Gospels like, man, those Pharisees. So glad I'm not like one of them. I'm a professional pastor for all intents and purposes and have been for 20 years. As much as I hate to admit it, I would have been a Pharisee, and I would have been able to justify it theologically. That's the reality. Because after all, that's my crew. 
it's difficult to appreciate that most of those prejudices come from our own cultural biases, and that happens intraracially. So when we lived in Mexico, city Mexicans would always look down on country Mexicans because we lived out in the boondocks, and everybody from Tijuana and Tecate looked down on where we lived. But then we took a trip to the Humi'i tribe in the mountains, and all the people where we lived in the Valle looked down, they considered them rednecks in the mountains. They looked down on those Indians in the mountains. White-collar, uh, blue-collar white people looked down on rednecks. City Koreans looked down on country Koreans based on the color of their skin. Throughout Africa, dark-skinned Africans looked down on light-skinned Africans. We do this even within our own pockets. So it shouldn't be a huge gap to see that we very well just may be doing this to other people. And it was through living deeply in another culture like Mexico that so much of my own prejudices were thrown back in my face. And my first response was, no, that's not cultural, that's biblical. Is it really biblical, though? You're going to have to proof text something that you say, thus saith the Lord. And I realized so much of my understanding of Christianity was how it got expressed in my American context, which is not bad, but it's also not transcultural. And so there's the need to appreciate that. And here is where his argument ends. He says that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Some people believe that's referring to angels and demons. Some people believe that that's referring to political structures, social structures, cultural structures, religious structures, all the institutions of humanity. Either way, through the manifold wisdom of God, Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is being made known. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has fully realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul says that this is so important because the church is central to history as the forerunner of this new society. There is no society on planet Earth that resembles God's new society in the church. And the missiologist Leslie Newbegin, who spent most of his time in India, said the church stands in the middle of human history as a sign, an instrument, and a foretaste of the coming kingdom. The church herself, Soma Culver City, stands in the midst of history as a sign of the kingdom, meaning the kingdom has not fully come, but we are pointing to it. An instrument of the kingdom in that we are yielding ourselves so that the Spirit of God through us might use us as an instrument to build that kingdom. And a foretaste that as messed up as it may still be right now, we're always pointing towards something of hope. We're always pointing towards something of resurrection life. We are people who have walked through the darkness of Good Friday and come out on Easter Sunday. We recognize that without death working in us, there can be no life for other people, which means we can be a lot less guarded, a lot less proud, a lot less self-righteous, a lot less intrigued by our own intriguingness. 
I just made it up right now. It didn't work too well. I won't ever say it again. <laughs> and I can humbly ask questions of people that I just look at and I think, how do you function as a human being? I don't even know what life looks like for you. And this is a privilege that I've had being a missionary, being pushed to live with people who think so differently about everything. Why do you do what you do? And maybe you're not the one who's weird. Maybe I'm the one that has to call my old cultural prejudices. So like, I know we think it's simple illustration. I, I know we think it's the most common thing in the world, but like if I found out, let's say we're in another culture, I found out someone is turning one year older, and I say, quick, get me all the dough and the sugar and eggs that you have. I'm going to bake you something. And I put together this big confection of sugar and flour, and I mix some eggs in there, and then I throw it in fire, and then it comes out, and they're like, oh, okay. Is this a gift? Yeah, it's kind of a gift, but wait, I have to put more sugar on top of the sugar. And so I mix up some icing, I put some icing on there. They're like, that seems pretty appealing. I could eat that. No, wait, I need to set it on fire first. So I put some candles in there, then I light the candles on fire. They're like, this is getting a little bit freaky right now. I don't know where you're at. I can't eat this fire. Am I, what am I supposed to do? Wait, now I sing to you the song. And I start singing this weird chant that everybody around you who looks like you seems to know. And I'm like, I didn't get the memo of the happy birthday song. And then the finishing touch is everyone is going to blow their spit all over this confection. <laughs> we're going to blow the candles out and then we're going to give it as a gift to the person. And we're like, no, man, that's normal. And they're like, if you people think that's normal, you're messed up. There's nothing normal about what just happened. True story, by the way. Not everybody does things the way that we do. And the point that I want to make is that when God divinely reveals some truth about himself, there is a responsibility for us to steward that on behalf of others. And according to Paul's word, that's as good a definition for the word ministry as I can think of as a starting place. Ministry is making known the person and work of Jesus wherever he's placed us to the people he's placed in our life. To proclaim the unsearchable riches. And for Paul, that wasn't in Jerusalem with the Jewish people. For Paul, that was with the Gentiles to the ends of the earth. He knew what God had entrusted to him. Peter knew what God had entrusted to him, and they were partners in the gospel, even though they had very different contexts with very different people. One of them didn't need to be right and the other one wrong. They both just had the same gospel expressed differently in different ways. So we'll end there. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for the Apostle Paul. Thank you for his heart. For those that no one wanted to go to. It just it resonates so deeply with me. And I thank you for those who have the gift of pioneering, of going somewhere new, to see the glory of God established. And I thank you 
for those who stay with patience and grace and faithfulness over years and years and years like Peter. I'm so thankful for those who don't get frustrated so easily by the lack of change, but have the gift of sticking it out and ministering. And for all of Paul's protégés who picked up and went somewhere new, somewhere scary, somewhere where there is yet another expression of the fullness of who God is to explore. May you bless all of us who fall somewhere on that spectrum. In Jesus' name, amen.